on my phone this morning, it was a headline notification saying that 80% of Americans at this point in time feel like our country is out of control. And so what better time to go to the God who is in control, and we wanted to set aside a little bit of time this morning to do that individually and as a church. So the next few minutes we're going to have some instrumental music and just time for us to reflect and pray. Uh, pray for our nation, pray for our own hearts, uh, pray for our neighbors, and uh, just pray that the gospel uh, would have its effect in the world around us. well. Mostly I would just like to pray the scriptures this morning. Father, thank you that we can come before you as a church. I just pray that as your church, the God of endurance and encouragement would grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that as individuals, we would be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I pray that uh, we would hear the cry of the poor and be answered by you as well. I just think of the many that are hurting, burdened heavily, many who are fearful perhaps most of the world right now as individuals, Lord, and we just hear your cry 
through the ages, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I just pray that, that many would turn in their fear and their hurt and their distress to you, that we would cast our burdens on you and find the rest that you give. I would lift up the leaders of our city, our state, our nation, and across around the world. Just think of the, the words, the oracle of Lemuel, the king, that was given to him by his mother. She said, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And I just pray for our leaders that they would have the humility to look to you and the wisdom that you provide for leadership of men. Father, I just thank you for the hope that we have, that scene that's recorded, the future scene that's recorded in Revelation 7. You have a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Thank you, our Father, that we have a hope and a future, a future of joy and peace and righteousness. And I just thank you that we can cling to that hope at this time. I just pray again for our church, for us as individuals, for our nation, for our world. In Jesus' name, amen. The Word of God, which provides us the really the only perspective that is going to be of value. So I appreciate you that, that very much. I'd like you to just consider with me opening the time before we study the Word of God in prayer because we approach the Word of God with reverence and need. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truths of your word which are abiding, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths from your law, that you'd help us to take these difficult truths and not just pass them off as for someone else, but to examine our hearts. We pray that you would guide us into the truth. And help us to apply it to our lives. I pray that we would be people of hope, not just for hope's sake, but because we know the God of hope and the God of all peace. That we would be people of your word, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and our hands. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to make one comment about what's going on in the world, one verse, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. As I've been thinking about things, that verse challenges me to do what's just, me, 
to demonstrate mercy, me, us, individually, and to walk humbly. And I think the last one is the prerequisite for the first two. I can't do justly and I can't love mercy until I'm walking humbly. Well, that's quite a preface for the thoughts that I have to share with you with regard to the passage we're looking at this morning. Actually, the two are a little bit related. So I'm going to start this thing, and you're going to maybe wonder if I went off the deep end. But this morning, I really wanted to teach you about hoarding. Um, I mean, about amassing great accumulation of wealth, riches, treasures stored up in great quantity. Now, some of you have seen Dave Ramsey in the United States. He's one of the premier teachers of how to take care of your finances. And he has said, I want to teach you to live like no one else so you can live like no one else. If you do what I say, I will, you will be rich when you retire. There are entire, well, there was at least one TV show reality TV show that, that taught people, showed that how people were hoarding their possessions to the point that some of them couldn't even make their way through their homes. Hoarding and hoarding. I remember as a young adult, we went through my grandmother's fruit cellar on the farm. She had a place that back down in the basement that was kind of that had a dirt floor and uh, the rough walls and she kept all of her canned goods there because it was cold and cool. We went through the fruit cellar after she had passed away and she had jars, home canned jars of fruit and vegetables that were seven, eight, nine, ten years old. You wouldn't dare open them and actually consume them, but she had them. And there are reasons for that I'm not going to go into. I'm not demeaning my great, my grandmother, bless her heart. She was a great, great woman. But my intention this morning is really this, to give you a biblical justification for hoarding. But not for hoarding for here. Heavenly hoarding. Heavenly hoarding as Jesus commanded us to do in the Bible in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 24. To store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. You see, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees we've seen from Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 48 is a righteousness that practices before men the true understanding of the law and, as we saw in chapter 6 verses 1 through 18, it engages in personal, private practices of piety that are to be seen only by the Father. And now, as we turn to chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, we see yet another aspect of it, this idea of heavenly hoarding, of storing up treasures in heaven. See, God wants us to evaluate the value we place on our possessions. 
How important are they to us? And storing up treasures in heaven is a single-minded devotion to serve God and to worship Him and not to worship our possessions as God. And so God's children are to serve Him with all of our resources and worship Him and not to worship what we possess. And so in Matthew chapter 6, and you can take your device or your Bible and open there, if you would, to verses 19 through 24, which we're going to read. I want us to look at three activities that Jesus uses to instruct us, or Jesus, uh, he instructs to instruct us on the priority and the practice of heavenly hoarding, which is a manifestation of kingdom righteousness. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust corrupt, nor thieves break through, break through and steal. Or thieves break through and steal, depends on your translation. Then he says something that's really interesting, that doesn't, like, doesn't seem to go with it. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. Now, if your eye is clear, healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then he concludes in verse 24. And he says, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will Despise the one and cling to the other. We cannot serve. He says, you cannot serve. Now notice the personalization there. You cannot serve God and money. Or mammon in the New American Standard, the American Standard Version. But money probably in the ESV and in the NIV. Money. So here we go. Heavenly hoarding from the Bible. For treasures in heaven, not for earth. And the first activity that he admonishes is that we're to store up treasure or heavenly treasure and there are three considerations here he first of all provides us with a negative prohibition against being greedy and that's in verse 19 do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth forbids heaven earthly hoarding i searched the internet and found this picture of uh, somebody's garage not my garage but uh, somebody's garage, and this is just part of the garage, okay? Uh, that's hoarding at anybody's standing. Now, whether it's not appropriate or not, I'm not to be the judge, okay? Because really the issue here is not how much you have, it's how you view what you have. Okay, And we'll get more to, that, to more to that to later, but Literally, stop storing up treasure on earth. Stop the accepted practice, which is usually justified in our Western culture, of hoarding and hoarding and hoarding and keeping and keeping and keeping. Treasures. And then we go, oh, well, okay, well, okay. I've got a few things, but I don't have treasures. I have 16 cans of green beans, but I'm not hoarding green beans, okay? Uh, okay. But treasures. Treasures are what we live for. Treasures are what we live for, earthly goods whose value turns our hearts away from God to loving Him supremely and obeying Him completely. 
Whatever it is I have that turns me away from worshiping him and serving him and obeying him completely. That's a, that's a treasure, an earthly treasure. And so God's concern, listen, is not for our stuff. It's for the significance we place on our stuff. Okay? How important is it to us? I can tell you this. My, my father has a hammer collection. Hammers, you know, tools. Hammer collection. Yeah. But I will guarantee you, they are not treasures. They're not in a case somewhere. They're strewn hither and yon all throughout his farmhouse. Instead, there's one in the truck, there's probably one in the van, there's probably one or two in one of the tractors, one or two in the tool shed, there's one or two in the garage. He's got a collection of hammers. But they aren't treasures. They aren't things that he values. He just can't find one, so he goes and buys another one because he needs to have a hammer. It's a not a treasure. But treasures in, include, but not limited to such things as gold or silver or shoes or hand sanitizer, uh, toilet paper, uh, green beans, certain clothes, cars, land, mutual funds. You know, treasure can be anything that we value. Some people treasure newspapers. You saw the picture of the hoarders there. Newspapers and magazines. We can treasure lots of different things. The command is, to direct, is directed to all of us with the tendency to cling and to stockpile stuff and to trust in the stuff and not to trust in God. To be reliant upon what we have, not reliant upon Him and not to, willing to serve the Lord. Earthly treasures... Storing them up conflicts with righteousness of the kingdom, which is manifest through devotion, single-minded devotion to, to God. Earthly treasures, they tend to lure our hearts away from trusting in God and to treasuring the stuff. You know what that amounts to? Greed. Which Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, is idolatry. It's looking to something other than God as if it were able to provide us what only God can. The stuff. Colossians 3.15 says, Therefore put to death the earthly members, your earthly members, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Some of you are familiar with the passage in Luke chapter 12. If you aren't familiar with it, you can just write it down. It begins with verse 15. The rich man who was, uh, you know, he was accumulating a bunch of stuff. He says, oh, I got a bunch of stuff, so I'm just going to build bigger barns and store them, and I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry and have my way. And then you see the conclusion here in verses 20 and 21. You fool, God says. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, earthly goods are to be used, not collected. Okay. But I would add to that that at times some goods are to be collected so that they can be used. I mean... I don't think it's wrong for people to have some retirement. 
I know a man whose retirement is in his machine shed. It's full of vintage vehicles. That's his retirement. You know. So is that wrong? I'm not there to say that that's wrong. He's accumulated them for use later. Okay, And so here's what the Bible says. Jesus never condemns possessing things. We live in this world. We're just not supposed to live for this world. Think about these biblical principles. The Bible commends storing up provisions for the future. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. You know, it's how the ant is praised. Because the ant diligently works and stores up things and prepares, right? So that's not a bad thing. He commends it. Then he commands providing for our family. That's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. In fact, the person who doesn't provide for his family is considered worse than an unbeliever. Okay? So we're supposed to provide for our family. You see, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus didn't command the man's riches, but he condemned his reliance upon the riches. The riches weren't the problem. It's that he relied upon the riches rather than relying upon God. That was the problem, his idolatry. And then finally, the Bible calls us to enjoy what he provides. You read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So if he supplied us with stuff, that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the stuff. Okay? Jesus didn't condemn riches. He condemned uh, idolatrous attitude towards riches. So the test, well, I mean, how do we know? <laughs> I don't know. How do I know uh, if I'm storing up treasures? The test is how detached, how objective we are towards what we possess. Do I hold it with liberating detachment? Do I hold it with an open hand that it's God's to be used as he wants to be used? Or do I cling to it? Some of you have seen Lord of the Rings. And you know Gollum. It's his precious. It's his precious. It's his precious. He wants to possess it. That's the root of evil. Okay? Here's the deal. Some of you have seen this TV show. I haven't watched it for a long time. I've seen it American Pickers. Okay? A couple guys from Iowa, you know, they decided, hey, there's a bunch of people out there that have a bunch of junk in their garages and their machine sheds and all this stuff. We're just going to go help find them. We're going to relieve them of their junk, and we're going to sell it and make a profit. But it was amazing to me as I watched the show a couple of different times that they would go into a place, and this person had all kinds of mast, all kinds of stuff that really wasn't worth much to him or her. And these people offered to pay them money for their stuff. And they said, no, I don't want to sell it. And they had, I mean, whoa. They held on to it. And so this is the danger. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul warns us against the accumulation or the clinging to one earthly treasure called money. The love of money is the root of all evil. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all sorts of evil. The warning of Jesus is not against possessions, but obsessions of covetousness, of greed, of self-reliance, which eclipses our focus on God. Why is it that in the United States, 
we spend more on lawn care and garden retail, $47.8 billion, than we do on foreign missions, $45 billion. Now, okay, because we value our lawns more than we do the souls of people in other parts of the world. That's why. Now, I would, you know, statistics are anything. You can make anything say whatever you want to say. Obviously, there are a whole lot more people, believers and unbelievers, spending money on garden retail stuff, okay? I mean, I know a guy, a good friend of mine, he's a landscape architect, and there are people that spend eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 just for their backyard remodeling project. And when he tells me that, he just kind of, my draw, jaw drops, and I just kind of go, you know, Oh, what it would be to have, you know, 80 grand, and I certainly wouldn't be spending it in my yard, <laughs> you know. But the question is, would I be spending it as God would want me to spend it? Yeah, I can, I can condemn the radio preachers, you know, and you thought I was one when I started, didn't you? <laughs> you thought, oh, oh, he's all gone off the deep end. He's one of those health and wealth gospel preachers, you know, I'm going to teach you how to accumulate stuff, you know, just here's the number, phone in, send your money. No. That's not it. Easy to criticize them while I'm justifying my own materialism. Oh, Jesus says, look, there's some deterrence to this. Storing up for yourselves treasures on earth. Notice he says in in verse 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Now, there's two ideas behind this destroy thing. What does that mean? Well, there's decay. Okay, that's the first thing, decay. Nothing lasts forever. My, uh, my wife, bless her heart, I had this shirt that when I had when I was a young boy. I, I earned it at a football camp, you know. And I wore that thing. I was so proud of that thing. It was a treasure. And you know my treasure began to have ratty holes in it and holes and it shred. It was thin, paper thin. And, you know, okay, ladies here, I'm just giving you a clue. Guys like paper thin shirts to sleep in, okay? So just don't trash them. I mean, that's our treasure. We like that stuff. It may look horrible. As long as we don't wear it in public, just let us have our vanity. We like to wear really thin shirts to sleep in. Okay? Well, my wife, it, it, but they rot. You know, when only the polyester is left, you know, it's kind of time for the thing to go its way, all right? Well, clothes rot. I remember as a boy going up into my grandma's uh, farmhouse upstairs where I slept. And I smelled, I smelled, I don't know if you, do you know what a mothball smells like? Maybe you don't know what a mothball smells like. It maybe dates me. Okay, well, they used to put mothballs in, what? To keep the moths away because the moths would come in through the holes and the cracks in the house and then they would get into the clothes and they would eat the clothes and they would deteriorate. The moths corrupt. They destroy it. Where rust destroys it. Our van, which is a 2002 model, has rust that's rotting the fender wells around the tires. It's rust. It corrupts. That's what happens, folks. But we work hard. The wind, the rain. You seen a flag that hangs outside? Some of you hang a flag outside? It didn't take long. 
you know, the sun, the wind, the rain, the snow, the cold, she starts flapping. We do things, right? I mean, we, we laminate articles to preserve those articles. We put undercoating in our cars. Now they just come that way. They used to, you used to have to ask if they would put this rubberized stuff underneath to keep your car from rusting out. Now it comes that way. People use Botox. Uh, people do things to help preserve and keep the natural decay process from being evident. I mean, you know, if you have a deck, uh, you have decay. And no matter what you do, the, the deck on your house or wherever you live, it, it begins to decay. It begins to rot. The window frames begin to rot. Time and wind, it stuff decays. It breaks down. Then there is destruction. <laughs> Nothing lasts forever. Fire and wind and rain and storms, tornadoes, harsh reminders of it. And then he says, and thieves break through, which reminds us that what does not decay can be taken away. If it doesn't rot, it can be robbed. And that's not fun, but that's a reality of it. James chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, I'm going to put a, we're going to have them on the screen. It says, your riches have rotted and your garments become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will cons consume you, your flesh, like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. This is James writing to condemn the the wealthy who had been abusing the poor and re refusing to pay them their wages. It rots. It, it, it goes away. So it's time to stop storing up treasure. That's what Jesus says. This treasure that cannot prevail. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says uh, to Timothy that instruct those who are rich in this present age, what? Not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the riches. Why? The uncertainty of riches. But on God. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Fix our hope on God. Not on the riches which fall away. So that's the condemnation. That's a negative condemnation of storing up riches or towards greed. Now he gives a positive admonition applauding generosity. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where... Moths and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. Instead of accumulation, we're to use our resources to store up heavenly treasures. So the question is, how do we do that? I mean, what does the Bible say about heavenly hoarding? Oh, we're supposed to do it, but how do we do it? Well, I'm going to give you three suggestions that I think are pretty clear from the Scripture. First of all, through giving. Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus instructs that giving to the needy and to the poor is a means of storing up treasures in heaven. So, giving. Giving to those who are needy and help them is a way to do it. I know he's been in the, the news recently, uh, maybe some controversy around it, but that's not why I picked him, but Drew Brees is... Uh, NFL quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, and Drew Brees and his family recently donated $5 million. $5 million, that's, you know, lots of zeros, to the state of Louisiana to give, in order to give to families, elderly, in poor 
children who were in need of food, to provide food for those people. That's why he gave the money. Five minutes of generosity. He was giving for the purpose of encouraging those people. Secondly, good works. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, Paul says that we should be rich in instruct those, those same people who are not supposed to be conceited or fix their hope on their riches. He says, instruct them to, be, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So there is the use of our resources to do good works, but there's also just doing good works, okay? And in doing so, you build a firm foundation, what? For here? No, for the coming age. So to be rich in good works. I've told you before about Kurt Warner, how he, former NFL MVP, actually Super Bowl MVP and former NFL player for the uh, uh, Arizona Cardinals now. Okay, And I was going to say St. Louis or whatever, but they move around a lot. Arizona. So he was an NFL player. When he takes his family out to go out to eat to a, a, din, a diner or a place to eat, they always pick somebody in the restaurant that they're going to buy their meal for. So he asks his kids, okay, who are we going to buy the meal for today? And the kids look around the restaurant and they say, oh, let's buy it for those people. Generosity, they're given. They're doing good works. And this good works can be the use of our finances. It's, folks, I don't know if you saw in the Creekside News, but the Renew Resale Shop over in the Urban Heights area of Des Moines, uh, a guy that I know over there, Highland Park Christian Church, they operate this uh, re- new resale shop. They're employing people from the community who need a job to, to run the shop. And when we donate stuff to that shop, it helps pay the employees. It helps run their programs for the underprivileged students on Monday night and on Wednesday night for junior high and senior high and for elementary kids. Many Hands for Haiti just opened up a a collection place here in Clive. And we can give to those things. That's good works. We can do good works by helping with ESL here at the church. Hopefully we get back to being able to have ESL here at the church and to do the mentoring program that uh, that, uh, Katie and others have been instrumental in help getting going. Giving gifts to a baby shower. Doing good works. Giving money to our graduates doing good works, taking a meal to a neighbor, praying for the people in our neighborhoods who are hurting, listening, just listening, encouraging people, watching the children of a busy mom so she can have some, maybe an hour of sanity in her life. I mean, I remember when our kids were little and Marla would just like, okay, I'm taking the kids and, you know, that was like vacation, you know, and it didn't even take long. Well, sometimes it took longer than others, but, uh, you know, it, it didn't always take that long. So help them. You know, what's really neat is I, we have, a, we have a, some people in the church, they're, they're committed to helping these, these expectant mothers having baby showers for them. What a blessing. What a way to encourage you know, somebody who's going to have a baby. And isn't that what we're supposed to be about, is celebrating life and the gift of life and what that means? So doing good works. And then finally, gospel ministry. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 14. I'm not going to read the passage, but here it is. Paul says, 
You know, Paul watered, Apollos planted, but God was causing the growth. And we lay up and we store up these, these, uh, these uh, treasures, and some are going to be wood, hay, and stubble, and some are going to be gold, silver, and precious metals through the works that we do and sharing the gospel. Folks, the world needs the gospel. Heavenly treasure, what do we get? We get a relationship with God that endures forever. And whatever rewards he decides to bless us with, I don't know what they are. I haven't read what they are uh, given in detail, but we read it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. They're stored up in heaven for us. They're not going to fade away. They're, un- un- they're not going to rot. They're there. Heavenly hoarding requires a heavenly orientation. I wonder this morning, just, and I'm asking myself this. Paul says we're citizens of heaven. But do we live like it? Is my orientation towards heavenly things? See, I'm a child of God. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ and his death alone as the payment for your sin, you're a child of God. And he saved us by his mercy, and he saved us to serve him for his glory, and he saved us not so we would live selfishly, but so that we would live selflessly for others. Now, hey, We are to live to serve God. We exercise liberty. So when I'm preaching this, I'm preaching to myself about not hoarding for this life but for the next. But I'm not you and you're not me. I can't live your life for you. I can only let God work in my heart and you can let God work in your heart. So there is liberty. But there's no excuse for abandoning our responsibility to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And then finally, there's this powerful reason. There's this prohibition, and then there's this admonition, and then in verse 21, there is this reason for it. And he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's just switch it. Where your heart is, there is your treasure. I, that, that makes more sense to me, you know. Where my heart is, that's where my treasure is. Where's my life? Bonhoeffer put it this way, where our treasure is, there is our trust. There is our security, our consolation, our God. What has our affections holds our allegiance. What has my heart gets my head and my hands. What I'm passionate about impacts my life. A man that's a friend of mine, not like we're the best of friends, but I know him, talked to him many times, gave up a, a life of pretty good financial means in Germany to commit his life to serving the Lord Jesus in ministry. Is our treasure in God? Or in goods. How do we know if my treasure is God or in goods? Well, let's just say this, folks. I think it's a pretty good assumption that the natural tendency that all of us have is to be enticed by materialism. Our natural tendency is to, to trust in the riches around us. And so I think few of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, who are honest, 
can read these words without some tension, without some conviction, without some sense of a need for correction in our lives. We're to, we're to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, store up heavenly treasure. Secondly, we're to see clearly. This is what he says in verse 22. Yeah, the lamp of the body is the eye. Well, here it says, if your eye is clear, okay, and the word means singular, singular, okay, healthy. It's a picture of the physical body to describe a spiritual reality singularly fixed on God. Is my focus on God. And if my eye is clear, then my whole body is full of what? Light. Light is goodness. Light is truth. Light is righteousness. My eye is clear, fixed on God. I'm I'm living righteously. That means I'm surrendering to God. I'm serving God. I'm giving to God. I'm obeying God as best I can. And we'll engage in that giving, that doing good, and that gospel ministry. Conversely, he says, if your eye is evil, which means bad. If your eye is bad, which means evil. Okay. So the contrast is between an eye that's clear, it's good. If an eye is bad, it's evil. It means that I'm blind. To God's call on my life. Blind to what God wants to do in my life. I'll never forget my, my 12-year-old sister. We were on vacation. And we're out west. And I'm driving through a national park or some place with all this beautiful nature scenes around us. And we saw a bear in the woods. Do you see the bear? Do you see the bear? Huh, where's it at? Where's it at? Where's that? Well, the poor girl, she couldn't see because she had... Uh, uh, Eye problems. And we didn't know it until we'd been on this vacation. She was blind to the beauty of God around her. Those who are spiritually blind to God's call in their life have a darkened eye. Their eyes are dark. They're looking to the world, looking to God. No, they're looking to stuff, looking to possessions, looking to what the world can provide. And folks, that's what I see in our world today. There's people clamoring thinking that the world is going to provide them what will, only, that will, what will satisfy their soul, which is what only God can give. They're looking in all the wrong places. If the light that is in us is darkness, how great is it? If the light that's in us is a focus on accumulation and trusting in myself, how bad is it? That's where we need to stop and say, okay, I'm just assuming that you're like me and you struggle here. And especially in this area. I mean, you know, when you live where I used to live, not such a problem. Not that it wasn't a problem, but not such a problem. But when you walk around and you drive around and you see what you don't have, it is awfully hard not to focus on what you want instead of what we need. I'm just assuming you're like me, so you struggle with this. And so the idea is, when my eye, how is it, am I totally gone? Am I just wholesale materialistic? I, I, I really doubt whether that's where most of us are, but we like to excuse that fact that we probably are still materialistic and we need some work. <laughs> we got, you know, we're in process. 
So we, we need some work. If there is darkness, if there is this tendency to self-reliance accumulation in order to find satisfaction that only God can provide, guess what? Our vision is clouded and we're drawn off target and we're headed for a ditch. Anybody here ever driven in a rainstorm that was raining so hard you couldn't see the road? I have. Now, if you keep driving in the rainstorm when you can't see the road, it isn't good. But it's also dangerous if you just stop, right? Because somebody else may just keep going. But if, if you get off course just a little bit, let's just say you can't see, but you're, you're, you think the road curves a little bit, and you just get off a little bit, and you keep driving, guess what? Before you know it, where are you at? Probably in the ditch or off the side of the road. See, for us as Christians, if our eyes are clouded just a little bit with materialism, it's, we could get in the ditch pretty easy. So we need a constant, constant, constant vigilant efforts to prioritize treasuring what lasts for eternity. Then finally, we serve God only. The last statement in verse 24 is basically this. You either love God and hate the pursuit of stuff, or you love stuff and hate the pursuit of God. Now, hate is relative there. I would never say that you hate God, but in effect, by loving something else more than God, compared to God, you hate God. Okay, that's the idea. Just like Jesus said, unless you hate your father and mother and brother and sister, and you know, what? I had a roommate in college, you just throw that in my face. Oh, you're supposed to hate, you're supposed to hate your family. No, I love my family. Well, then you don't love God. Yes, I do. Well, how can that be? Well, because it's comparative. Compared to my love for God, I'm supposed to be considered like, why? Well, I hate my family. No, I'm supposed to love God supremely. That's the idea. We cannot love God and mammon. Our practice, not our profession, reveals our true person. So you may be here this morning, you may be listening online, you may be saying, yeah, I'm really trusting in riches and wealth, and I don't really care about Jesus. I don't really care about God. Well, it's undoubted that anybody who rejects God is going to be trusting in riches. You're going to be pursuing. That's your, that's your pursuit, is processions. But here's the other deal. It's undeniable that riches provide you with some satisfaction. I'm not going to deny that. There's some satisfaction in having things. But there's no lasting satisfaction in it. And no matter how much you have, if you're only trusting in what we have, we'll always want more. Isn't that interesting that there are some people who are multimillionaires who are, are beggars on streets and go through garbage cans? And you go, well, why is that? Well, that's how they became a millionaire, and they're going to continue to be a millionaire. They're going to always be a millionaire because they're never going to spend any of their millions. Now, that's not a large percentage of population, but the point is this. We are, your, your, your pursuit of riches is never going to bring you lasting peace. But I can offer you something that the Bible gives, and that is true peace with God that will satisfy the deepest parts of your soul. Paul said in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. No agitation. Do we have peace in the world right now? No, not at all. But we can have peace with God. And the peace in the world is contingent, in my opinion, upon peace with God. 
Because only when people have peace with God will they have peace with each other. And we can have peace with God if we will understand that we are sinful people. All of us headed to an eternity apart from God and deserve His judgment. But by His grace, He sent His Son Jesus who died on the cross and paid the debt that we owe so that we could have eternal life. If you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, are you going to be rich? No. In this world, but rich? Yes. Rich in eternity. Can't promise you an easy life. No. There's no guarantees, but I can promise you at least what the Bible says is the forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life and an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you. And I would invite you to turn and trust in Christ. If you're a believer here this morning and listening and trusting in Jesus Christ as, as your Lord and Savior, then here's what I would say to you. Live like no one else so you can live like no one else. Store up treasures in heaven. So what do we do? I, got three, I have three suggestions for you. I want you to think about this. Whether we have little or we have much is not the issue. It's why we have, how we view, and what we do with what we possess that matters. It's why we have how we view, and what we do with what we possess that matters. So, join me, will you? Examine our hearts. Psalm 139, verses 23. Search me, O God, and know me, and try me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. You know... I don't know about you, but I, I, I would surmise that many of you, you want to love God with all of who you are, but you know that your tendency is to get entangled and to turn and trust in these stuff, you know? And so just search God, search your heart and say, you know, God, search me and know me and show me. He, he challenges our mindset of seeking after these. Help me to live in the world, but not for the world, Father. Show me where these idolatrous, materialistic tendencies are and expose them. And then secondly, express our repentance. That's Psalm 32. It's like a, like a weight lifted off your shoulders when we have forgiveness. Lord, forgive my sins. Express in our prayers and in our practice our, our tendency towards materialism. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I want to repent. I want to turn from it and commit to do it. And then thirdly, explore options Explore options to divest ourselves of earthly possessions and to invest ourselves in eternal reward. Now, where can I give? Where can I do good works? And where can I share the gospel? Giving, serving, going. You see, the greatest eternal treasure we have is a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. That God made it possible through the death of His Son. And I would like to suggest that in when we take the bread and we drink the cup, which symbolize His body that's broken and His blood that's shed, so that all who believe may be right with God, we first of all are contemplating God's mercy. God, I don't deserve it, but you rescued me. 
We celebrate what it means to be in his family. And then we consecrate ourselves to live more fully for him. So I'm going to ask uh, the praise team to come up and they'll, uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll take the elements. So would you pray with me? Father, uh, I just know that uh, these truths are bouncing around in my head and uh, challenging my heart. I pray for each of us, Father, that you'd help us not to continue to store or to store up treasures on earth, but to be more devoted to storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. Father, help us to turn and to love God and to serve you as our master and not money. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we have an opportunity to take a moment and to reflect on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And what a, what a great gift, what an awesome thing Jesus has done for us. He willingly laid down his riches on our behalf, so that we could become rich in him. Uh, so uh, during this next song, take a moment to reflect on what Jesus has done. When you're ready, uh, whether you're at home or whether you're here, just take a moment to, to take the bread and the cup in remembrance of Jesus. Thank you.